Good. Okay, can you hear me? Oh, yes, you can hear me. Good. As I was saying, I'm a donkey with books. You will understand. You will understand. <coughs> In a minute. Two. First, while I'm doing this, I want to thank you all for uh, having me here. Oh, well, uh, no, that's all right. I got to put these out. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, as I say, you'll you'll understand. Uh, from time to time, uh, I write a few things, and. Uh, This is, I'm afraid, a rather clumsy obedience. But, uh, while I'm doing this, let me ask for a show of hands. How many of you have no internet? No Gmail? No internet? How many of you have no emails? No email, an older saint? So you, I assume, do not know what it is to receive a PDF file by email. No, you don't. Okay. So these are giveaways. And uh, I'm, I, I, again, I apologize for, uh, for uh, I warned you I'm a donkey with books. I apologize for uh, for doing this. Um, the point of entry this morning, while I'm doing this, point of entry this morning will be Psalm 14. Uh, Psalm 14. You know, the Bible tells us, it may seem a shock to you, that there is no God. You know that? It's in your Bible. There's no God. Now, if you ever wondered about the importance of context, well, you've got to understand the context. Because the Bible says in 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, I want you to observe. Uh, oh, my. Sorry. That's it. Well, I mean, I've, I've written, since I've retired, I've written about 30 different books, studies, and other things. Maybe you don't know that. And the reason I asked, oh, I'm sorry about your drums. The reason I asked about dinosaurs, being a reformed dinosaur myself, is that I, these, the things that I'm putting up here, are all available online. Um, they're all available online at CheshireBible.com or via my computer. So, uh, I mean, you get something like this. Now, this is uh, my notes on Psalm 119. There are 150 essays in here. It took two and a half years to write. There are four introductory sections. One relating to the words of Psalm 119, one relating to the 22 letters of the alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gamal, Dalt, uh, Dallas, and each letter is a single word. Aleph is a leader. Beth is a house, you know, Beth Israel, house of Israel. Uh, uh, Dallas is a door. Gimel is a bearer of burdens. Every one of those letters reveals the person of Jesus Christ and the eight the 22 octaves of the longest Bible, the longest psalm in the Bible, and the uh, longest chapter in the Bible are all about the Lord Jesus. And so these are devotional essays. Now, somebody might say, well, I want this. I want you to give priority to the dinosaurs. I want you to give priority to those who can't get a download, because this is available online at uh, CheshireBible.org. Give me your email, and I'll send you a copy of it. 
You'll understand in a minute why I'm doing that. Okay. So, uh, oh, and one more thing. The point of entry for our, how long have I got, incidentally? When do I stop? Tell me. Pardon? That's a dangerous thing to say to me. <laughs> uh, the reason being, I remember one of these is on the Lord's Prayer, and uh, I was gave a series of messages at the uh, Christian Transportation International Conference in Canada, and it was three quarters of an hour before lunch. I'm not quite sure whether it was. I went on at full speed. I'm not quite sure it was an hour and a half or three hours. I was never invited back. But that's okay. When the, when the Lord is upon me, I move. Um, so the, the point of entry is uh, Psalm 14, 1, verse 3, 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. I want you to observe first the sentence. There is no God. Four words. It's a very short sentence. Actually, in Hebrew, it's even shorter. If you look in your Bible, you'll notice there is is in italics because the translators supply those words so they can make, help you understand what he's saying. Actually, what it says is, the fool has said his heart, no God. Anytime the Lord asks you to do something and you say no, you're a fool. You do not say no to God. Now, first, the sentence, there is no God, is a lie. Observe that. It's a very short sentence, and it is a lie. Okay? Secondly, lies are meant to fool people. I mean, why does anyone lie? Because he wants... Oh, I'm sorry. I need this. Why does... Why does... Why does a person lie? Why would somebody lie to you? Because he wants to fool you. That is, he wants to make you a fool. And if you suddenly discover what lie he's telling you, he says, I was a fool to believe that. Hmm? So what the lie does is it takes a person and turns him into a fool. Furthermore, uh, it, it thoroughly corrupts him. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There's none that doeth good. The lie affects everything you think, everything you feel, everything you say, and everything you do. Everything. It's a lie. It's short. It's very searching. And the critical thing is, where does this dialogue take place? What is the locus of the dialogue? The fool has said in his heart. What does that mean, in his heart? Well, I think perhaps fortunate for you, there is a corollary, and that's what I really would like to speak about today. And incidentally, I would say this message has probably been 70 plus years in preparation. So I looked it up. I like to consult with others. So I looked up by a, a man who may or may not know, Stephen Charnock, one of the great theologians that England produced along with John Owen and other old Puritan divines long before the assembly movement got started. And he speaks on Psalm 41, 14, 4, the very verse. It's taken from a, his magnum opus, The Existence and Attributes of God, and his dialogue goes on for 30 pages an eight-point type. It's better than anything I've written. So I commend it to you, and I'll leave it up here for you to read. Uh, incidentally, if you take it, read it, please. Don't just take it to decorate your bookshelf. Now, the key to this message is something that's not obvious, 
And that is the reverse of what 14.1 tells us is also true. That when God speaks truth to you, and you receive that truth into your heart by faith, it transforms you and makes you a truly wise person. It changes everything you think, everything you feel, everything you say, and everything that you do. It absolutely changes the life. In, incidentally, that change is given a very simple Greek term, metanoia, which comes from meta and nous. Meta means an overall, an overarching, you know, a meta strategy, a meta plan. It means an overall what? Nous, mind. It's an overall change of the mind. And that word metanoia is translated repentance. So when truth enters the heart, you experience, by faith, you experience repentance, because it's displacing a lie. That's very deep. You experience repentance. That's not to be repented of. It is an irreversible process. You know, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Why? Because Humpty experienced a dreadful irreversibility. The word of God produces an irreversible change in your life. That's why you're here today. Because God wants to change your life. And I mean change it. Hopefully the point comes across. So, truths are propounded by God in the scriptures. They are often expressed in short sentences. You know, you are my king. You are my king. You repeat it over and over again. Let that truth penetrate your heart, and it's going to change the way you approach life. Um, Truth, to take effect, has to be received by faith. You have faith and repentance. What do you have? Conversion. It's the two halves of conversion. It's like two sides of a penny. Truth received by faith in the dialogue the heart will make a man wise. When truth enters the heart, it has a profound effect on everything. That's why Proverbs 4.23 will say, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. See that no lie enters your heart. Okay? And our Lord says in John 8.32, You shall know the truth. Truth shall make you free, not only from the consequences of sin, but the power of it as well. And that's what sanctification is about. Okay. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look first at the heart, and we're going to look at wisdom. What is wisdom? And maybe that'll make this come a little more clear. And finally, we're going to look at truth. That's pretty tall order. All right, consider the heart. When he's talking about the heart, what is it? What is he talking about? Well, it's a metaphor. He's not talking about the pump that's at the center of your circulatory system. It's a metaphor. You, you, you know the difference? There's, there are, there are com- com- contrasting things in Scripture. They're called similes and metaphors. You know, I'll give you an illustration. He's built like an ox, but he's a jackass. Okay? He is built like, like an ox. That's a simile. But he's a jackass. That's a metaphor. Both things describe. He's neither an ox nor a jackass. But what's doing is it's linking attributes or behavior of those things with an individual. Now, that's, I'm not saying that to any of you, <laughs> even if you are big. But uh, so this is so. So the heart is a metaphor. Okay. And uh, a metaphor for what? Well, it's a metaphor for the. Remember, you are a seen being, you're a, a, a visible being, a, a material being, but you're also an immaterial being, so. Now we can describe the limits of your body, your fingertips and your toes, your nose and your ears, but you can't really describe the limits of the soul. It doesn't have limits in that sense. It's not a geographical thing. It's not physical. It's not spatial. And so, therefore, you can't describe it as a, having a center, although you'd like to. That's an, But... What it is, is the deepest, the heart stands for the deepest and most profound aspect of your entire spiritual being. Okay, so when the truth proceeds to that level, it has tremendous power. What is the heart like? What is your heart like? What is my heart like? Jeremiah tells us, heart and man is... uh, 
desperately wicked, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's four things. One, it's wicked. Your heart is wicked. Now, you were born with a heart that was in sin. Did my mother conceive me? It doesn't mean that, that procreation is sinful. It means that the sin nature is transmitted at birth. You were inherited a sin nature. You inherited a nature that tends to sin. Okay? And it's wicked. Furthermore, it knows it's under sentence of death. The soul knows that. And it wants to survive. And how does it do that? It's desperate to survive. Sin is, your sin nature is desperate to survive. There's a, there is about you a dreadful desperation. It's desperate to survive. And how does it do that? Deceit. The heart is deceitful above all things. And, and what is deceit? Deceit is something that very carefully covers up. It's a lie. And it very carefully covers up. That's your heart. That's my heart. Remember being under great exercise once when I tried to figure out, well, why am I doing something? Why am I preaching to you? Why am I talking to you? Maybe it's because I love you and you're precious to God. And I, I want you to be helped and profited by my life. Or maybe I'm just up here strutting my stuff. You'll say, wow, what a clever guy that is. See, one's a gross motivation and the other, can I tell the difference? <laughs> no. And I reviewed everything that I'd ever done. For weeks, I reviewed it. And that for every positive motivation, I came up with an equally horrendous negative motivation. And I was beset with grief. I was troubled. And I said, Lord, help. And he moved my eye <coughs> down one verse in Jeremiah. <coughs> and you know what the very next verse is? How many of you know the next verse? I, the Lord, pride the heart. Give every man according to his ways. I, the Lord, cry. I try the reins to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. By the fruits you shall know them. So the heart is desperately wicked, and this is how God deals with the heart. First, we can say that Although you don't know the condition of your heart, God does. There's nothing hid from him. You cannot hide from God. So when Samuel comes to Jesse and he says, uh, I'd like to talk, see which of your sons, and he looks at this one and that one, and they're big strapping guys, and they really look good. And uh, God says, nope, nope. This next king of Israel, nope, 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 nope. And so Samuel says, you got anybody else? And Jesse says, well, there's the runt of the litter. He's out watching the sheep. Call him in. And the Lord says, that's the one. And then when he says to Samuel, this is Samuel 16, 7, look not on his countenance or on the height of his statue, because I refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance. I can't know why I'm doing this. You can't know why I'm doing this, but the Lord knows why I'm doing this. And that causes me to be fear, to fears him because I don't want to be doing it for the wrong reason. I have to answer to my Father in heaven. Dost thou not fear God? I do. I have to give an account. The Lord seeth not as man seeth, where man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And he tries the heart. And as soon as I understood that, immediately the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 139, where, where my Bible study and I are working right now, came to mind, where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. That is a prayer that every one of us needs to be able to pray because otherwise we're going to have problems with our old nature. Now, what is it about the heart? Does God have an interest? Yes, he has an interest in your heart. What does he want to do with the heart? Well, Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, I will give them one heart. You know, one of the things that's remarkable, I remember the psalmist, the hymn saying, we would remember we are one with every saint that loves thy name. And I remember seeing that as a boy. And you said, you mean those Baptists down the street are my brothers in Christ and I really need to love them? 
<laughs> we would remember we are one. Don't think that God hasn't been making great saints, that he stopped with Augustine and picked up with Martin Luther. God was creating saints all through what we call the Dark Ages in the Catholic Church, still has the saints there. Don't, don't succumb to the notion of us, them. There are your brothers in Christ in other denominations. That was the genius of the assembly movement. We would remember we are one with every saint that loves me. I don't care about your denomination. This is, are you my brother in Christ? If you are, I love you. When I visited my friends, family in France eight, nine years ago, the first question that the mother, the mother patriarch of the family asked me, we'd been separated from our family for 250 years, and we came back and said, hi, we were your relatives from America. First question she asked me is, are you Christians? That was her first question. We were stunned. They go every Sunday to Mass, but they're believers. And I love them because they're my brothers and sisters. I will give them, take away, give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What he's saying, the stony heart, that's the heart with the Ten Commandments scribed on it. Ezekiel 36, 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. God changes the heart by imparting his truth to it. God writes, wants to write upon the table of your just the way his finger once wrote upon the table of stone that he gave to Moses. He wants to write upon the tables of your heart. And what does he write? His truth. And his truth can be profoundly simple. You are my king. Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant will I make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Second Corinthians 3, 3. For such as you are manifestly declared through the epistle of Christ ministered to us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, the Decalogue, not on tables of stone, but on the fleshy tables of the heart. What? Thou shalt love the Lord my God with all your heart and mind and soul and your neighbor as yourself. That's what underlies the Decalogue. The Decalogue is not a revelation of how you should behave. The Decalogue is a revelation of how God would behave if he were in the flesh. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not you. Okay, so God sees the heart, he judges the heart, but he loves you and he wants to change your heart, and he changes your heart by writing his truth into it. Now, I'd like to consider a wise man in contradiction of a fool. Proverbs mentions three things. It mentions knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. They are not the same, and most people don't bother to differentiate what are they. But let's think about it for a minute. What are they and how are they connected? First, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom all involve truth. Faith, in and of itself, is not particularly helpful. You know? Faith derives its power because of truth. I mean, I can believe in the sanctity of a rhinoceros horn. What's that going to get me in eternity? I can believe a lie. It's faith. You just got to believe. No, no. You just got to believe the truth. And it's the truth as God presents it. Okay? So, they all involve truth. Now, knowledge, they're related. Knowledge leads to understanding and understanding to wisdom like steps on the ladder. Knowledge is largely conceptual, and it helps us understand the reality of entities that exist. Okay? It can be wealth, poverty, transportation, security, liberty, love. Wait, these are things we can know. Then, uh, understanding relates to how these real entities understand how these entities that we know of in these true entities interrelate and very specifically how they relate to us that's understanding 
It's one thing to know that this is an automobile. It's another thing to know, to understand. You put the key in, turn it, the car starts, and you can drive it. Okay, that's understanding. And lastly, there's wisdom. Now, wisdom is different than understanding because while knowledge identifies things and understanding puts them together, wisdom identifies the ends of things, where this is going to go. See, a wise man says, if you take this set of courses, this is where you're going to end up. But if you take this set of courses, this is where you're going to end up. Now, one of the things that God says, our Lord says it, is I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It is a terrible mistake to make a means to make of God a means to an end, you know, like a cosmic dispenser unit. I pray, oh Lord, give me a job. Oh Lord, do this. Oh Lord, do that. You know, I just like put your money in, pay the coin in, pull the lever, and plunk out comes what you want. You know, God is a, a great dispenser in the heaven. Wrong. God is not a means to an end. God is the end of all things, and he is to be feared. Because you and I will give an account. He wants to know what you did with your life. He wants to know, husband, how you treated your wife. He wants to know, wife, how you treated your husband. Did you treat your wife as a royal princess? Did you treat your husband as a royal prince? That's who they are. King of kings. Well, that means that your husband is a king. He's a believer. That means your wife is a queen. Did you treat her like? That's a very simple lesson on marriage. You want to have a happy wife, treat her like a queen. That doesn't mean kowtow to her. It means treat her with deference, with respect, with dignity. Listen to her, care for her, nurture her, and vice versa. So wisdom looks to the end of things. God is the end of all things. That is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom, but it's the beginning of wisdom. That you understand God is the end of all things, and if this is so, and this is so, and this is how they interrelate, what does that mean for me? What does that mean in relation to God? Now, that's kind of abstract and philosophic, so I'm going to tell you three stories, and I'm going to go over, but I trust you'll bear with me. I remember being a boy, I'd gotten up early, I was about 11, and uh, I was downstairs in the house, and my mother called to me from upstairs on the second floor of the house, and she says, Joseph, Joseph, and I went to the stairs, and I said, yeah, Mom, what do you want? She says, I need your help, and I said, and she says, David and Danny, your brothers are asleep, I don't want to wake them, but I need your help. She said, now, you don't have to help me if you don't want. I said, no, no, it's okay, Mom, what do you want me to do? And I came up the stairs, and then she said, your grandfather died last night. And she said, I need you to help me get his body back into bed. So we went in the room, and there was Grandpa. He had half gotten out of bed, had a massive stroke. I, mean, I won't describe the details. It would be upsetting. But he had a I wasn't frightened by this incident. It was kind of, I remember. It was very memorable. He had half frozen. And so she says, now I'll hold his shoulder, and you grab his heel, and we'll lift the body up into the bed. So I grabbed his foot. I think it was his right foot. Left foot was kind of tucked behind him. And I remember it was kind of a calloused heel, rough skin, and it looked blue. And I lifted him, and he was stiff as a board. Lifted him up, and, and we got him. I, she pushed the shoulder in, I pushed the foot in, and there was Grandpa, like this, in the bed. And I said, Mama, why is Grandpa stiff? And she says, that's rigor mortis. I've never heard the term, rigor mortis, Latin, the stiffness of death. I said, well, how are they going to get him in a box? Yeah. I'm 11, right? How they going? I was thinking ahead. And she says, well, the undertaker probably has to cut the tendons. And Actually, that's not true. They inject formalin, they massage the muscles, and they relax, and they put them in the box. So that was my introduction to death. People, if you've got small children, don't be afraid to take them to a funeral. They need to understand. They need to know about death, that there is such a thing as death. Okay, another story. Uh, I was converted at about, I don't know, 11 or 12, quite a few years ago. And I was sitting at the Lord's table in Union City, New Jersey, Gospel Hall down there, Union City Gospel Hall. And we were around the Lord's table, and we were singing a hymn. And it was hymn number 87 in your hymnal, hymn by William Featherstone. Featherstone died early. He, uh, he was only 28. And he says, the hymn runs, Lord Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art fine for thee. 
I said, with the follies of sin, I resign. And the third verse says this, um, I love thee in life, I would love thee in death, and love thee as long as thy lendest me breath, and sing, should the death do, lie cold on my brow, tis thou who art worthy, Lord Jesus, thou. And I'm singing this, and I'm about 12 or 13, and I say, sing, should the death do, lie cold on my brow. And I said, uh-oh, oh, I'm going to die. See? There's grandpa, that's death, but there's me. And suddenly I realized, Death is coming to me. I'm going to die. That's understanding. Okay? Fast forward 65 years. And Diane comes to me one day and she says, Joseph, I, I, I'd like to, con to consider where we're going to be buried. And she says, a lovely little graveyard. And I said, oh, okay, fine. You know, we'll go look at the graveyard and we contact them and we buy our grave plot. And, well, now you've got a grave plot. What are you going to do? Well, you've got to get the tombstone, right? So we go to the tombstone company and we grave it. And oh, by the way, when I engrave the tombstone, I want some kind of a gospel. I want somebody to know he's a believer. So what do I write on the backside of the tombstone? Right there. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and that's on the back of my tombstone. Now, Diane selected one from Isaiah, call you upon the Lord while he's near. And so I can't quote it exactly. But it's the gospel. It's the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's on the back of the tombstone. First thing, top of, the, top of our tombstone, Jesus Christ. The same, yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. Well, now you're writing a tombstone. What do you do next? Well, you got your will. We execute our will. Now what do you do when, if, you know, it's, it's when you gather all the documents together. Somewhere along that process, a small truth entered my heart. Your days are numbered. It's not death is coming to me. It's your days are numbered. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may give our hearts to wisdom. When the truth enters your heart like that, you get your gears in together. So one of the things I was saying is, Lord, I got this library. I have a library of almost 2,000 volumes. History, theology, philosophy, commentators, people you wouldn't know about, some very abstruse books. It covers 2,000 years of Christian writing. I'm looking at this pile of books, donkey with books that I am, and saying, Lord, what do I do with this? And he drew my attention to things that I had written over the years. And we'd always have a few things that would I didn't get a chance to give away. And he says to me, Joseph... Those books are going to be worthless to you in eternity if you don't, if they're gathering dust on your shelf. Give them away. Obedience. You know, numbering your days is not the same as counting them, it's recognizing that you only have so much time and that how you use your days. You had better pay attention to how you're using today. As I said this morning, the Lord's coming is imminent. This could be the last time we'll remember the Lord. But the other thing is, your death is imminent. I don't care if you're young or old. Featherstone was 28 when he died. I've lived almost three times that time. I remember our brother Tim McClellan. You know, I remember what he preached the last time. How dusty are your clothes? Are you walking close enough to the Lord that the dust he kicks up with his feet is coming down on you? That's talking about close fellowship. It was the last message he gave. 21 months later, he was on a hike up Mount Washington, and he died. The Lord took him. And that's a real lesson to me. To number your days is to apply your heart to wisdom. Why? Because I have to confront the Lord. So that's the three stories. And uh, that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now let's consider the effects. So there's wisdom. There's, now let's consider the effect of what... Let's, let's consider another familiar thing. Millions of people know that Jesus died on the cross. We'll consider the effects of truth. We don't like to talk about truth. So many people know The Buddhists know that. Muslims know that. Jesus died on the cross. Many who profess the name of Christ have a little, that's knowledge. Many have an understanding. Jesus died 
for sinners. That's putting Jesus and sinners together. We had that this morning again. Sinners mocked him. He died for sinners. That's an understanding. That puts, I know what a sinner is. I know who Jesus is. And that puts them together. But it's all the difference in the world when the truth enters your heart. Jesus died for me. That changes the life. That changes everything you think, everything you feel, everything you say, and everything you do. That's why you're here today. Because that truth has entered your heart. Peter says in John's, I wherefore I will not be negligent to... This is uh, second, Peter's second letter, first chapter, verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, he's on, he knows his days are numbered. My departure is at hand. As long as I'm in this tabernacle, he says. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you in remembrance of these things. Then he says, though ye know them, that's knowledge. Though ye be established in them, that's uh, in the present truth, that's understanding. Yea, I think it is me as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up. Stir you up. Anybody burn wood in the fireplace? How many burn wood? Anybody? Nobody. One wood burner. What is it that you got to do with a fire? You got to stir it up. When you got embers, you're going to poke around and separate the embers from the ash and put the new logs on and adjust them and keep them burning. You stir the, you poke at you. That's why you got a poker because you poke in the fire. It's not a card game. Uh, so, wisdom, truth. Stirs you up. That's why when you are here at the Lord's table and you're remembering, it's not just that you know these things, you know them. It's not that you understand them, but it's that you are stirred. Jesus died because Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. You know, the kids talk, Jesus loves me, this I know. No, this I, this has entered my heart. And the colors, if he loves me that way, what can I do but love him back? And everything I do, I will do for him because I love him. <laughs> Truth in the heart makes a man wise to salvation. 2 Timothy 3.5 And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10 If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Believing, receiving the truth into the heart changes our relationship. What does righteousness mean? It means that you have a right relationship with God. To be justified. To be brought into right relation. So a righteous person has a right relation with God. And it's a relation he can't establish. It has to be established by the hand of God. What does it say? Or what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness. Romans 4, 3, Galatians 3, 6, the same thing. And, and, um, and also, uh, uh, and also uh, James. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. For it was called the friend of God. Truth in the heart makes you fruitful and brings glory to God. Jesus says, John 15, 1, and assorted verses, I am the true vine, and my father is a husbandman. Every branch in me da, 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 that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. The minute you receive truth in your heart, God is going to give you more truth. Okay? And he's going to give you more and more because that all makes you fruitful. And so to purge... Purgation. You know, people say, oh, people believe in purgatory. I believe in purgatory. <laughs> You're in it. You're in it. Man has this hope, purifies himself. That's purgatory. You know, you're being purified. That's part of sanctification. You know, it's the supper dishes. Sanctification. You wash the supper dishes, you put them in the closet. Purification, separation. Okay? So, it and he says, he 
every branch of me that beareth fruit, he purges it. It may bring forth more fruit. There it is. Fruit, more fruit. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And then he says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. And then he says, for the, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be disciples. So fruit. Well, fruit for the glory of God happens when you receive the truth into your heart. Okay, now let's take a look at some truths. I guess I'm over time, but that's all right. First thing to remember, just where we started, just as a lie can be very, very short, profound truths, truths that enter the very deepest part of our being, the heart, received in a heart by faith, cause a displacement of a lie and a change to the truth. We believe the lie, we now believe the truth. Don't believe the lie, that's conversion, repentance, and faith. Truth that's received by faith can be very, very short. Jesus died for me. Okay? Your days are numbered. <laughs> Changes everything. Um, what are some of the other truths? I'm just going to point them out. And uh, the next message that I have, where I will be coming, bearing more things to, uh, to as gifts for, for my profit as well as yours, uh, will ad address uh, how this happens, the method, modus operandi, or one aspect of the modus operandi that seats the truth in your heart. But it can be said in a few. For example, thy will be done. Do you have any idea how profound that will affect your feeling? You're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. Or somebody's a slow driver. Slow, I mean slow driver. Well, if the, if, you know, are they there by accident? I don't think so. I mean, do you have any inkling of the nature of divine providence. The providence that numbers the hairs on your head surely knows who's driving ahead of you. And that may be the slowest thing on four wheels, molasses in January, and you're... When in fact, if the truth in your heart is, Lord, thy will be done. I don't know why they're there, but your will be... You know how much that eases the pressures of driving? You don't go crazy? I learned that demons can speak to you. Where did I learn that? Without using words. Where did I learn that? <laughs> While driving on roads in Connecticut. Thy kingdom come. Oh, I could tell you endless stories about thy kingdom come. God gives you things. And you have a choice. Do I hang on to it or do I give it away? Well, if that thy kingdom come and God has given it to you and you give it away, you're furthering the kingdom of God. You're furthering that you may say, oh, it's a small thing. I, I, I need to tell you one day about a grain of sand that changed a man's life. He's the last of, of the Rough Riders. His name is Jess Langdon. My, my, my mother-in-law knew his wife, and he would visit. The last of the Rough Riders. He had an interesting story. It all revolved around a grain of sand. And I had a choice. And it's in here somewhere. I think it's in the thing on the disciples. Discipleship. Oh, there's another one. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Do you know why I'm here? Do you want to hear why I'm here? It'll take a minute. You're willing to sit for another minute? I have taught the Bible for almost 50 years at Sikorsky. Okay? Once a week. And you can write a lot of pages when you do that. I have preached in the assemblies for years. I have done counseling. I've done marriage. We've done a lot of things. That's not. Why? Why did I do that? My family was looking at a farm. <laughs> they wanted to buy a farm. They never did, thank heaven. But the farmer took us out to the field. And there at the edge of the field, it was close to the Delaware River, there at the edge of the field was an enormous gully. I mean, there were trees at the bottom of the gully. Whole tree trunks laying down there, bleached in the sun. And he said, yeah, I used to drive across that when I was a boy. And I said, you've got to be kidding, mister. That thing is 18 to 20 feet deep. You could, you'd drive over that with a thing. Oh, he says, it wasn't always that deep. He says, years ago, we had a lot of rain hereabouts, and the water rushed off the fields, and it came down this gully, and it just went out into the river, and as the water passed, it cut the, the gully 
wide and deep. You know, there's two kinds of people in this world. There's gully people and there's swamp people. Swamp people take what God gives them, but they never give it away. And you know what happens? The water of God's word packs up and it gets stinky. It breeds frogs and weeds and junk. But there are people who said, oh, the Lord gave me something. Well, I'm going to give it away. Fast as he got, give it away. Fast as it comes, give it away. And you know what happens to your spiritual life? Instead of becoming a swamp, you become a great and deep and wide channel of blessing. You want your life to be expanded. You want to be somebody, and it's never too late. Okay, you want your life to be deep and wide spiritually? Give it away. Give it away. Write it down. Give it away. I don't care if it's a small thing. Give. And it shall be given unto you. Give, hold on to it, and forget it. I mean, if you had a guy with, you gave him a thousand bucks, and he said, and you said, okay, invest it. And he, <laughs> and he came and said, well, I got the thousand bucks here. I didn't do much with it. And then you had another guy, you gave him a thousand bucks. I said, yeah, well, yeah, I get, here's 10,000 bucks. Who are you going to give the next 2,000 to? The guy who gave you the money back or the guy who returned 10 times on your investment? Who are you going to give it to? Why should God think any differently? Why should he give you anything if all you're doing is hanging on to it and not giving it? What am I doing here? I'm giving it away as fast as I can. Why? Because I know God is going to give me more. He can't outgive the Lord. And I learned that from a gully on a farm when I was about 13 or 14. And that has changed my life. Give! And it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, flowing over. You want a great spiritual life? Give it away. We are one with Christ. Lord, we would remember we are one with every saint that loves thy name. Oh, how about these two words? You ready? Make disciples. I remember the Lord putting that on my heart. I don't want that. No one disciple me. And he said, what part of make disciples don't you understand? Now, I was so dumb. I could have said none of it. But the truth of the matter is, he just said, what part of make disciples? It's not rocket science, Joseph. So I said, well, let me see what I can do. There's a thing up here on discipleship. You can read that story. Make disciples. Love your neighbor. Oh, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. I'll, I'll tell you that story uh, next time I'm here about the way I obtained three medieval texts by Meister Eckhart, Henri Suso, and Johannes Tauler on the trip back from St. Louis to New York City and how I had to learn to ask, to seek, and to knock. But sometimes the Lord puts you through the traces in order to teach you the truth. So next time, we're going to talk about how truth enters the heart, and we're going to talk about five things, and they're quite old. They started, they started being formulated in the second century with origin. And it relates to, in, in the Middle Ages, they used the Latin lectio, meditatio, contemplatio, ora, and labora. The non-Latin scholars... It's reading the scriptures, not reading devotion book, reading the scriptures. The scriptures are the premier book about devotion, okay? Because God communicates his truth through the scriptures. So, and he can through others, but reading. Meditation. Most people read much too much. And we'll put you through some exercises to illustrate that. Contemplation, not the same as meditation. Prayer, and then works. Because God has appointed works for you to do. Every day, God has something for you to do. As a matter of fact, a bunch of somethings. The question is, in what attitude, in what spirit are you doing? It's like, well, what do you want me to do today? Go to Africa and preach to God? No, I just want you to vacuum the bedroom. I want you to do the laundry. I want you to cook the meals. I want you to cut the grass. What? There's nothing spiritual about that. Depends on how you do it.
Are you doing it as unto the Lord? As unto the Lord? Well, words, huh? another truth, as unto the Lord. So we're going to touch on how that actually gets implemented in our lives. Okay? Like I say, this has been 60 plus years, and this is the summation of years of my life. So this isn't something I dreamed up last week. This may be the last message I give you because my days are numbered. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you not only sent your beloved son to us, but you sent us to him so that he could tell us of you and that we might learn and understand and believe that which he tells us of you, how you are and therefore how we ought to be. We thank you, our Father, that you are in the business of changing our hearts by implanting your truth. We pray that our hearts may be open to thee, that as you speak to us through the scriptures, that we may be changed from glory to glory in the instant that your word becomes real and enters the dialogue of our heart. So we commit ourselves again to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please, uh, this is not the golden apples of his